as we're entering this traffic jam of different replenishments, IDA is really a standout as one of the funds that I think is going to be the most critical this year. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. There is a global development pileup on the horizon. In 2024 and 2025, about a dozen funding pools that support global development and global health are due for replenishment. These replenishments are essentially fundraisers for entities like the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, Gavi, and the World Bank's International Development Association, IDA, among many, many others. A new report from the Center for Global Development warns that these fundraisers may all be competing with each other for similar pools of money, and they're doing so at a time of contracting foreign aid budgets and pivotal elections in key donor countries. One of the authors of that report, Clemence Landers, joins me for a conversation about the causes and consequences of a potential replenishment traffic jam. We kick off discussing what we mean by a replenishment in global development speak, which sometimes can sound like its own language, but don't worry, I'm here to translate. Clemence Landers also makes the point that of these fundraisers, the World Bank's International Development Association, IDA, is arguably the most consequential. IDA is the branch of the World Bank that provides grants and very concessional loans to support the development priorities of the lowest income countries. The World Bank is seeking a major replenishment this December, just weeks after the U.S. presidential election. This episode provides a really helpful background about what I think is a really key issue in international affairs in the coming months and years ahead, which is the implications of shrinking foreign aid budgets to the health and welfare of most people on this planet. And as always, if you love our work here on Global Dispatches, please consider making a financial contribution by becoming a paid subscriber either through globaldispatches.org or directly in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Clemence Landers of the Center for Global Development. 
kick off, I am interested in having you kind of help us define our terms a little bit. For those unfamiliar, what do we mean when we say a replenishment in global development speak? So in global development speak, a replenishment refers to the fact that there are many funds, multilateral funds that provide grants or very, very concessional loans. So loans at very, very cheap rates that with long repayment periods. And these funds are not financially self-sustaining. So in order to continue to operate, they go back to their donors on a fairly regular basis, maybe once every two or three or four years, and ask their donors for a new fresh source of financing to be able to continue their operations for the next replenishment period. And it's usually like a couple of years, right? And the way I think about it often is like it's a big kind of donor conference where they have to kind of refill the pot in order to do what they are mandated to do over the next cycle, which is usually a couple of years. Yes, absolutely. And, and donors, some of these what are called replenishment negotiations can take six to nine months. There's often two components to them. There's a policy component where donors are looking at the past performance of the fund that they're replenishing and thinking, oh, are there any reforms we need to make? Are we happy with how it's been operated? Are there any changes we need? And then the second part of the conversation is much more financing related, is how big is this fund? Is it big enough to be doing the things that we're asking it to do? Does it need to grow? And if it does need to grow, then different donors contribute different amounts. And often donors link their funding to how satisfied they are with where the replenishment has landed in terms of the policy outcomes. So there are those two tracks. And generally what happens is the policy track tends to be the first one and the financing track comes a little bit later in the game. So what are some of the more significant replenishments that are upcoming this year and into next? Like what are some of these funds and entities and what do they do? So the biggest one and, and the one that I'm watching the closest is the International Development Association. And the International Development Association is the part of the World Bank that provides loans and highly concessional loans and grants to the world's poorest countries. So we're really talking about countries that really don't have much market access and much other external access to financing and are very, very reliant on bilateral donors and the multilateral system to finance a lot of their development. So IDA is actually the largest single fund out there. It provides about 30 to $35 billion a year in grants and highly concessional loans. It operates on a three-year replenishment cycle. At this point, IDA is now larger in terms of the amount of resources it provides on an annual basis than the IBRD, which is the hard loan window of the World Bank, which provides loans to upper middle income countries. That's interesting. So IDA, which is targeted concessional loans for the poorest countries on the world, is now that pot of money is now bigger than the World Bank's support for middle income countries. Yes. And in a lot of ways, I really think that speaks to the fact that a lot of middle income countries just increasingly have more and more ability to self-finance. They have much improved domestic resource mobilization systems. They have access to internal capital markets. A lot of them have very deep domestic debt markets. And the portion of financing that they receive from the multilateral system is just getting smaller and smaller. Whereas a lot of the poorest countries, especially after COVID, are really finding themselves in a situation where the multilateral funds are, are really one of the main games in town right now. 
a lot of the poorest countries had access to capital markets and with the interest rates as high as they are now are finding it very hard to access capital markets on reasonable terms. And similarly, China played a very important role as a development financier, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. But all signs are really pointing to China really also slowing down quite considerably its presence in sub-Saharan Africa as an external bilateral financier. So this really puts, in a way, really the spotlight on the International Development Association as, as really a very steady, reliable source of financing. And in particular, during the COVID crisis, when a lot of poor countries really, really hit very hard, not just by the health crisis, but the ramifications of the economic shocks related to COVID, Ida really front-loaded. Ida really significantly increased how much it was doing in these countries. And it was really a lifeline in a lot of ways to a lot of the poorest countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. And it continues to be a lifeline because even as recovery globally is looking pretty good for a lot of countries, for a lot of the world's poorest, we are potentially staring down at a decade of lost development. Sub-Saharan Africa in particular is not recovering the way other parts of the world are. And so this really places the spotlight on Ida. And that's why I think, you know, in particular, as we're entering this traffic jam of different replenishments, Ida is really a standout as one of the funds that I think is going to be the most critical this year. You have made the case for Ida. Do you have a sense yet of how much the World Bank is seeking to raise for Ida replenishment? Yes. So the president of the World Bank has already indicated that he wants to be the largest replenishment yet. So last time Ida raised $23 billion for a three-year replenishment period, $23.5 billion to be precise, from its donors. But the total size of the replenishment was $93 billion. And this is for two reasons. One, Ida provides grants, but also very concessional loans. So Ida gets a significant amount of reflows from its loans. So it gets about $10 billion a year in reflows. So it can also then recommit those reflows. And Ida, because it has basically a balance sheet, like a bank, because it has outstanding loans, is also able to borrow from capital markets. And it has a AAA credit rating, so it can borrow from capital markets at AAA rates. So that $23 billion that donors put in is matched by reflows and capital market borrowing. And so the majority of Ida, the $93 billion, is actually not coming from donors. It's coming from internal resources and from market borrowing. This time around, the president of the World Bank has signaled he wants the largest Ida replenishment yet. And he said he wants to get $30 billion from donors. So that's $6.5 billion increase. But it's unclear what the overall level of the Ida replenishment would be. And this is for a couple of reasons. First, you know, they need to kind of do the projections of what internal reflows look like. And then they need to figure out how much they can borrow from capital markets. And one of the things that's really changed over the last several years, and I was pointing to this in terms of financing conditions for low-income countries, is that because interest rates are higher, it costs a lot more to borrow from capital markets, even for a AAA-rated institution. So when interest rates were low, Ida was sometimes borrowing at negative rates or it was borrowing at 0.5%. But now with interest rates higher, Ida's borrowing at about 4% or sometimes even 5%. So that's a really big increase. And what that means is Ida just has to pay a lot more interest on its market borrowing. So some of those reflows from its loans, instead of then being able to go out to clients, 
It's going to go to bondholders uh. to repay debt. And so that's the big unknown is how much capital market borrowing Ida can do under these circumstances. I think the harsh reality is, is that it's probably a little bit less than it's done last time. So that means that that $30 billion from donors may not stretch as far as the $23 billion they got last time. So it really does put a lot of the spotlight and a lot of the onus on a successful replenishment on the big Ida donors. And you've argued that a successful replenishment is complicated this year because there are many replenishments happening across several different funds. You've talked at length about Ida. What are some of the other key replenishments that you are looking towards throughout 2024 and into 2025? Can you just briefly list a few of the top ones? Because there are many. Yeah, I mean, there there are many. And, and we're coming off, actually, a replenishment year last year, actually, where we had the Green Climate Fund, which was replenished. Um, the Green Climate Fund is one of the new climate financing facilities. And then we ended last year with EFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And then this year, we have a couple more. We start off with the Asian Development Fund, which is the concessional lending arm of the Asian Development Bank, which provides grants to some of the poorest countries in Asia. That's quite a small fund, but it's still always, you know, seeing how donors behave in these early replenishments can often be a little bit of a bellwether. You know, we don't have dates for other replenishments, but we're expecting a number of the health funds to come forward. Like Gavi. Notably Gavi. There's the new pandemic fund. There's also the WHO, which has issued an appeal. Early in 2025, we have the Global Fund. And that's the Global Fund for AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. Exactly. And we also have the African Development Fund, which is the African Development Bank's concessional lending window for the world's poorest countries. But, you know, to add to that, there are a lot of kind of new funds on the block. The international community has, I think, sometimes the bad habit of often wanting to create new institutions as new challenges emerge. So now we have recently at the COP, the Conference of Parties on Climate in Dubai at the end of last year, Governments announced the launch of a new loss and damage fund, which they have very ambitious numbers for the loss and damage fund. I mean, some of the numbers are as large as $100 billion they're hoping to secure. I think that is a very, very ambitious and not a particularly achievable target in the current circumstances. And then the World Bank is also you know, looking to revamp a little bit. They have a new mission statement, a livable planet, and they've also established a new Global Public Goods Fund, which I understand is going to be called a Livable Planet Fund, which also will likely need to get some donor funding to be operational. So there's there are the old kids on the block, and then there are, there are new kids arriving on the block. And all of this creates quite a big traffic jam and, and a lot of competition. Yeah. I mean, so it seems that into this year and next, there's like about a dozen or so of these funds that are scheduled for their replenishments. And you know, as you noted, this may cause a sort of traffic jam because many of these entities are competing with each other for very similar pots of money. This has happened in the past, but what makes this upcoming cycle more concerning this time around? So this has happened in the past. As I was saying, a lot of these funds are on fairly regular cycles. But, you know, when when we did the math and kind of looked at what some of the appeals that some of these funds have put out, what were the past levels, we estimated that over the next two years, some of these funds, when you add it all up, could be asking for as much as $100 billion, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things really isn't that much, especially given how important and how critical a role 
a lot of these funds play in countries' development, health, climate, you know, really the gambit. But, you know, things are very difficult in a lot of donor countries. I mean, this is not a moment where international solidarity is the top agenda item. And in particular, international development is not the top agenda item. A lot of countries, especially in Europe, are cutting their aid budgets. We actually even just saw from France, which is the Macron summit in championing development finance, France recently announced that it would be cutting some of its development budgets. So that really then places a lot of pressure on these funds to make the case for why, you know, they a lot of these funds are asking for increases from their donors. The other problem is there's not a lot of diversity in donors. Most of these funds have pretty much the same donor composition. You really see the top 10 donors dominate across these funds. And which are those top 10 donors? Yeah, I mean, it's really the United States. So it's really the G7 countries and some of the Nordics are really, really the dominant players. Now, one of the most notable exceptions is Ida, where China has become a very big player in Ida. They're in the top 10. I think the last cycle, they were number five or number six. But outside of Ida, the composition of these funds is really, really homogenized and really is these kinds of traditional, what we call traditional donors. So you basically have like a dozen replenishments competing for similar pots of money across basically the same 10-ish donors. It's same 10-ish donors. And many of these 10-ish donors are in a period of very, very deep belt tightening. There's not strong domestic constituencies for development finance. The extent that they are spending money on development, they're really prioritizing climate. A lot of the Europeans are prioritizing hosting refugees from the fallout of Ukraine. The Ukraine response has been a big claim on foreign assistance and foreign resources. So health, even though we're, we're just coming out of a pandemic, is not necessarily at the top of the agenda. And ditto traditional development finance in the way that Ida does is not at the top of the agenda. And it seems layered on top of this belt tightening is the fact that there are elections in many of these major donors. You have elections in Japan sometime on the horizon, in the United Kingdom sometime probably in the second half of this year, in Norway, in Canada, and of course in the United States in November. How are these upcoming elections impacting whether or not that these replenishments may hit their goals? So that is the $100 billion question. And in particular, the U.S. elections are so critical. For a lot of countries, elections instill, especially in terms of foreign assistance, a little bit of uncertainty. But you don't necessarily see particularly radical shifts in how countries spend their money. It sometimes just means, you know, it will take a little bit longer for a country to pledge, or some countries may opt to prioritize health over some sort of other priority like climate. It can be important, but a little bit at the margins. The United States election is very different. And this is especially true because there are such radically different worldviews between the two perspective candidates. And in particular, I think this presents quite a lot of risk. I think the first risk, and this is going back to Ida, is really Ida. The U.S. elections are in November. 
The IDA pledging session is in December. So the Biden administration officials will be in the chair making the pledge. But then the inauguration is in January, which could be an inauguration of a new Biden administration, or it could potentially be inauguration of a Donald Trump administration. All signs point to a Donald Trump administration having a radically different worldview, especially when it comes to multilateralism and foreign assistance. Well, can I push back to you just like a little bit on that point? Because we've seen this movie before, right? And whereas you would see the Trump White House release these really dramatic budget requests that slashed foreign aid across the board, when it got to Congress, you know, they weren't quite as hostile to foreign aid. And, you know, a lot of the dramatic cuts that were proposed by the Trump White House were never enacted in Congress. And a lot of funding levels remained somewhat steady. That's the other big unknown is what the composition of the U.S. Congress will look like. Because you're absolutely correct. In a lot of these instances, the Trump administration would zero out a lot of these asks. And we were kind of in the reverse situation of what generally happens of Congress actually coming in and putting in higher numbers. Last time around, for instance, in Ida, the Obama administration made a pledge and the Trump administration really significantly cut that pledge, which was actually one of the first times in recent memory, where one administration did not honor another administration's pledge to a multilateral organization after a presidential transition. And what happened was there was a lot of pressure from Congress, and they put in a slightly higher number. But just as there are big uncertainties around the U.S. presidential election, both House and Senate are also up for grabs. So that also places a lot of uncertainty One of the key questions, I think, in, you know, around Ida is if you are in a situation where the U.S. is not going up and you have a U.S. that's actually going down, is are there other countries that would seek to fill the gap? And that's the big question mark. And and it does not seem to me that the Europeans at this point are organized in that way. But there are other countries that are coming in. I had mentioned, you know, China has been growing quite significantly within Ida. You also have other countries. Um, South Korea is becoming an increasingly important player in terms of ODA. That's official development assistance. Exactly. And then you have the Saudis that are very eager to host the Ida pledging session. And often the country that hosts the pledging session is the country that's going to significantly increase their contribution. So all of this to say is, is it's just as I think a lot of the traditional donors have a lot of domestic political constraints at the moment, it doesn't mean that there isn't a whole new cast of donors potentially on the horizon that could step up to fill this gap. And that's certainly something that I'm going to be looking at very, very closely over the next 12 to 24 months. So I wanted to ask you another question about like the politics of development assistance, maybe particularly here in the United States, just because the U.S. is the single largest donor in many of these cases. So you have Ida, which, you know, as you noted, is like a concessional loan facility. And essentially, you know, when it gives out a loan, the countries receiving a loan set their priorities. They apply for a loan to do what they want to do with the money that will improve their economic development in one way or another. This is in distinction from funds that are so-called more vertical, that are towards a specific issue like Gavi, which is for vaccines and immunizations, or the Global Fund, which is for 
AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. When it comes to like the politics of raising money for, say, vertical funds on a specific issue like malaria versus more broad-based development assistance like what IDA does, what are the distinguishing factors? I would assume, at least here in the United States, it's probably easier to convince legislators and appropriators to make pledges towards those vertical funds that fight like you know tuberculosis or AIDS versus the more broad-based development assistance. And are we going to see that kind of trade-off in the years ahead? I think your analysis is spot on. In a lot of ways, especially in the United States, multilateralism is a very hard thing to sell. Our overseas development assistance tends to be primarily bilateral. And when you look at the European countries, the portion of their foreign assistance tends much more to the multilateral. And so I think in general, in the United States, there's a little bit of skepticism of where is our multilateral money going? It's harder to track the dollar. And that skepticism becomes extremely strong when you're in the context of a multilateral fund like IDA, where the country really sets its priority for how it wants to use its IDA resources. And the vertical funds, the thematic funds, especially on the health side, are simply much easier to sell to Congress. And I think this partially explains, I mean, the U.S., you know, is is a huge source of financing for health. And there's been a very strong domestic constituency around health. And a lot of these funds, it's much easier when you're going up to Congress to brief and to explain what they're doing. And so I think it has created an environment where it is much easier to secure funding for the Global Fund, for Gavi, than it is to secure funding for IDA. And one of the most salient examples of that is the fact that the U.S. has quite a bit of arrears towards IDA. So it does raise interesting policy questions when you're, you know, deciding, do I want to put that extra dollar in IDA or do I want to put it in the Global Fund or Gavi or some other vertical fund with a very good track record of appropriations, is the fact that you also want to kind of request money where you're probably most likely going to get it. And so this has often created a lot of political complexities for the kind of much more multilateral, less thematic funds like IDA. And so the onus is really on the World Bank and the U.S. Treasury Department to really explain in very clear terms what it is exactly that IDA is doing for the poorest of the poor um, and really have a strong results oriented narrative of this is what this organization is doing for these countries and this is how it's really moving the needle. And that results narrative is much, much clearer and much easier to articulate when it comes to like stories about vaccination or stories about curbing an epidemic. Much harder to explain often when you're talking about long-term development and growth. So, you know, say it's 2026, 2027, 2028, and this traffic jam that you identified and articulated really does cause serious disruptions in the ability of or willingness of key donor countries to make contributions that are are required to many of these funds. And, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these funds are substantially underfunded. Mm-hmm. particularly Ida. Like, what does the world look like? What's the, the human impact of that? What's the social and economic impact of that? 
there's very considerable impact. I mean, as I, I was saying earlier, I really think of Ida in particular, but all of these funds really as, as the global social safety net. And, it, and they're incredibly important, especially in turbulent economic times like they are today. Ida is really just oversubscribed. Countries are coming to Ida really needing funding for their health systems, for their education systems, for infrastructure, for power. So my big worry is that we're entering a decade of lost development. And that would be catastrophic. I really mean those words when I say that. Ida is obviously not the only part of this equation. There's also the IMF. There's also, you know, countries also need to develop their own ability to self-finance. But it is a very, very important part of the equation. And I really think in difficult times like this, it's a real lifeline. I would also add, you know, a second part to this equation of, you know, we are living in terms of just the geopolitical moment we are in right now, of one where there's just such a palpable deficit of trust um, between the poorest countries and the rich countries. And the poorest countries really feeling like the rich countries do exceptional things to protect themselves at times of danger, whether that's on the climate crisis right now, though you could argue that some countries still aren't acting exactly in their own interest, but let's say they are, around Ukraine, exceptional measures taken during COVID. But there's never, ever this preferential option, this exceptional option for the poorest. And against this backdrop, you do have shrinking budgets and just a shrinking focus in general on poverty reduction and poverty alleviation on the world stage. And I think if the richest countries aren't able to meet this traffic jam moment, and really come forward at these funds with ambition, and not just ambition, but a real kind of moral clarity around this, I think you are going to be living in a very difficult geopolitical environment where I think a, a lot of rich countries will have rightly completely lost the trust of the world's poorest. And that is that is a very dangerous place to be, I think. So there's both a very strong economic and social policy rationale for being ambitious here, but I think there's also a bigger geopolitical one as well. And I hope that this is something that policymakers will be able to convey as they're justifying these funds to their enabling environment and their authorities. Clemence, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.